0: Well, I hope you guys have had a good weekend. We've had beautiful weather. Uh, Burnett and I had the privilege of having our middle son, David, his wife, Christina, and little Brooklyn come up for the weekend. Brooklyn is not quite two years old yet, so that's been a lot of fun. Yesterday, we took them out to the game farm, something every good, responsible grandparent should do with the grandchildren, and let a bison lick the back of her head, which is, I mean, that's just good fun right there, you know, cleaning (laughs) bison spit out of the kid's hair. So we are going to talk today about a tough subject. And to do that, I've decided to uh, give a message I've actually given before. I gave this actually about seven years ago as part of a series called The Faith Puzzle. Uh, How many of you happen to be there at The Faith Puzzle series? Okay, quite a few of you, so my apologies for the rerun. But uh, uh, we're going to do that. And and where I want to start this morning is uh, by telling you a joke. And, and before I tell this joke, I just want you to know that I find stereotypes deeply offensive. And with that said, a blonde meets a lawyer on an airplane. <laughs> so the lawyer spots what he thinks is an easy mark as he settles into his seat. And uh, he asks, as they're preparing to take off, if the lady would like to play a little game with him. And, and she says, well, what's the game? He Says, well, here's the deal. If I ask you a question, um, and you can answer it. You give me five dollars. But if you ask a question and I can't answer it, I'll give you five dollars. And the lady figures that this thing is probably rigged, and she says, "No, I really don't want to play." And so she proceeds to kind of settle in to take a nap. And and lawyer, not to be uh, put off, uh, decides to up the ante. And he says, "Hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. How about we do this? If you ask a question that I can't answer, I will give you fifty dollars. And if..." You ask, if I ask you a question that you can't answer, did um, can I get that right? Yeah, I'll still give you $5. You ask me something that I can't answer, I give you 50 bucks. I ask you something that you can't answer, you give me $5, all right? And, and the lady goes, okay, all right, let's, I, I'm, I'm willing to play. And so the lawyer, being a gentleman, offers to let her go first. And she says, okay, what is red and green, has 12 legs, and whistles? And then she turns away and proceeds to take her nap. Laurie's really stumped. I mean, he thinks hard for quite a while. Runs through all the animals he can think of. He, He cannot come up with the answer. And finally, hating to admit defeat, but out of options, he wakes her up and he says, okay, lady, here's your 50 bucks. I don't know. She goes, thank you. And he says, well, okay, what is it? She says... I don't know either, here's your five. (laughs) Well, this morning we're going to tackle the question that I think every honest thinking person wants to ask God, and that is the question, what about evil, pain, and suffering? Uh, Those of you that are in your rooted groups, this week the question you're going to be dealing with is, where is God in pain and suffering? Why do bad things happen to good people? It's the topic of the oldest book in the Bible, the book of Job. Job 13 says this, Man wastes away like something rotten, like a garment eaten by moths. Man born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. He springs up like a flower and withers away. Like a fleeting shadow, he does not endure. Carl Sandburg said this, Born, troubled, died. It's the number one objection to faith that is raised by, I think, every unbeliever. The British actor, Stephen Fry, he played Mycroft Holmes in the movie Sherlock Holmes, Game of Thrones. He was once asked by an interviewer what he would say if he ever met God. Here's his answer. I'll say bone cancer in children. What's that all about? How dare you? How dare you create a world where there is such misery that's not our fault? It's utterly, utterly evil. Why should I respect a capricious, mean minded, stupid God who creates a world which is so full of injustice and pain? Right off the top, I want to offer my $5 because I don't have all of the answers. Let me explain the metaphor that stood behind that series I did called The Faith Puzzle. You ever done a large jigsaw puzzle? You know, you dump all the pieces out, and and your first question is, is there really something there? I mean, it it just looks like a jumbled pile of nothing. But you know what you do, what's the first thing you do when you get a jigsaw puzzle out if you're gonna try and put it together? You look for the what? The corners and then the edges. Because if you can find four corners, and if you can work the edges out, then you know that there actually is some kind of a picture here. And and the more you work on it, the more pieces you start to fit into the puzzle. But until the very end, you've always got a certain pile of pieces that you don't yet know where they go. To me, that's a pretty good metaphor for how faith works. When, When we come to faith in Jesus, we begin to put the picture together, and we see some of the big corners. And and the longer that we walk with Jesus and the more we grow in our faith, the more pieces fall into place. But I think for every one of us, until the day we actually stand before Jesus and can ask those questions that have long burned in our souls, this side of heaven, there's always going to be a certain pile of pieces that we're not exactly sure where they fit. And when it comes to pain, suffering, and evil... Those are probably some of the pieces that are in all of our piles. I'm gonna suggest some answers that I think may help fit some of those pieces together. I hope that's gonna be helpful for some of you. Some of you may find it frustrating because the very nature of the topic means that there's some conjecture. But I think it's important we tackle it. And and quite honestly, there are gonna be some pieces left over that I don't know exactly where they go. It doesn't change the fact that I think I'm working on the right picture. I just don't know where everything goes yet. So let me tell you a bit of my story before we get into all the technical talk here. Some of you know my story that I was once a young associate pastor who left the ministry due to a crisis of faith and for a period of time became an agnostic. People in ministry often deal with tragic situations. Um, I spent 10 years as a sheriff's chaplain. I have been the one to knock on the door in the wee hours of the morning to tell a parent that their child is not going to be coming home. I've been among the first to sit with grieving spouses who have just discovered their partner's fatal collapse. As a young pastor, I struggle to make sense of that kind of loss. I remember the first time I encountered something like that. It was a young couple in our church, two little kids. They both were attorneys. They they were doing well financially. They were doing well in their careers. They were active. He had been out that evening playing in a softball league, came home from his softball game, put the boys to bed, went to bed himself. Two o'clock in the morning, he sits up, lets out a gasp, and falls out of bed dead. And we get the call to go. I show up, myself, the senior pastor, we're sitting in the living room with his grieving, shocked wife, knowing that in a short while, those two little boys in their pajamas are going to toddle out in the living room, and we're gonna have to explain to them why the daddy that tucked them in bed is no longer there. I've counseled spouses who have been betrayed I've done funerals for people who have given up on life and left their loved ones to pick up the pieces. I've cried with men and women who have been violated by those they trusted, sat by the bedside of friends who were dying with wasting diseases, and perhaps worst of all has been the stories of those who as children were victims of sadistic and even ritualized abuse. One situation in particular came to haunt me. There were no easy answers, there was no resolution. I couldn't even prove if the story was true. But if it was true, a person had long ago been violated in the most horrific ways. And I was awake one night, actually had the flu, this whole situation was spinning in my head. Lots of questions going around. What should I do? Did it really happen? Why did it happen? How could it happen? And suddenly this question Well, what if none of it's true? I mean none of it. God, Jesus, good, evil, what if none of it is true? And that eventually led to my inner world crumbling as I struggled to figure out the answers to some of those big questions. One thing I couldn't handle during that whole period was any kind of bad news. I am not a fan of movies with sad endings. That's not why I sit down to watch a movie, to watch a sad ending. How many of you uh, have ever watched the old Disney movie, Old Yeller? Any Old Yeller? That is the worst movie ever made in the history of mankind. If you haven't seen Old Yeller, I'll give you the spoiler. Little boy, dog he loves, faithful animal, animal saves him from rabid animal. In the process, faithful dog gets rabies, goes nuts itself, and young boy has to shoot his dog. That's a horrible movie. He shoots Old Yeller. I, for years, have refused to ever watch that movie again. Don't even invite me over for an Old Yeller festival. Also, do not invite me for Where the Red Fern Grows or any other movie where the dog dies in the end. I don't do those. But when I went through this personal meltdown, I couldn't take any kind of bad news. I I couldn't read a newspaper. My stomach would get in a knot if I asked someone how they were doing, and they paused for even just a moment. And if you live in this world, you know that there is no shortage of bad news. Reasoning about suffering, trying to make sense of it, is this two-edged dilemma. On one hand, we want to figure out the answers. But at the same time, trying to detach and rationalize about it when you are in it is impossible. Offering explanations when you're safely outside of harm's way seems callous and insensitive. My mom passed away about 10 years ago. She suffered a major hemorrhagic stroke, a brain bleed. And I remember being in the ER that evening. I had found her called the ambulance, they took her in. She was still alive at that point, but unconscious. And as I'm sitting in that ER, there was a nurse that came in, and he was, I think, trying to be helpful. He was trying to help me understand the signs he saw that indicated that my mom was not going to survive this event. And I remember he told me something about a symptom that he saw involving her big toe. Maybe it was information that I needed to know but it wasn't what my heart needed. Pain, suffering, and evil are very personal. And some of you sit here this morning, I'm aware, with aching hearts and raw wounds. And for me to talk about this and try to talk about some of the reasons behind pain and suffering feels about as detached and inappropriate as that nurse talking about my mom's big toe, when all I knew was that the woman I deeply loved was being taken out of my life. So I want to start by saying, I'm sorry. If I knew your story, if I knew what you were going through right now, I would not bother you with this sermon. I would just share your tears. I actually believe that God himself hurts with you. I'll talk more about that later. With that said, the fact remains that we are going to try to dissect this problem as best we can. And to do that, we have to step back a bit from the fog of pain enough to allow ourselves to do that thinking about what may lie underneath. Years ago, as a young father, I decided I wanted to take my kids fishing. And I'll tell you the mental image I had in my mind with this thought of taking my kids fishing. It's me and Opie walking down, you know, to to the fishing hole, to just a special time. Let me tell you what actually happened when we got to the fishing hole. I spent two hours undoing one snarled line after another. People crossed their fishing lines, they crossed their poles, they let out too much line, they reeled in too much line. I never did get to fish. All I did was unsnarl lines for two hours. Now, I think when we talk about pain, evil, and suffering, it's kind of like that fishing reel snarl. When you first look at it, you go, that is such a mess. There's no answer. There is no way to solve this problem. <laughs> but then again, if you start working on it, you realize there are different threads. You can pick a lot of it apart. So we're going to try to do that a little bit this morning and pick some of the mess apart. Let's start by talking about pain. None of us likes pain. Some can tolerate it more than others, but nobody in the right mind likes it. My dad was born in 1897. He had me late in life. He was 65 when I was born. He used to tell me that when he was a young man, he worked at a store that was right across from a dentist's office. And the dentist used to pay him two bits, 25 cents, to come over to his office, get behind the dental chair, wrap his forearm around the patient's forehead, and hold them down in the chair while he did extractions, because there was no Novocaine. It's ironic that for 20 years, I owned a company that sold medical equipment. Although I intentionally avoided selling dental equipment, that was a bridge too far. Uh, my personal tagline in all those years, I would sometimes say medical equipment, more fun to sell than to experience. And I know of which I speak. I, uh, I'm a multiple time kidney stone sufferer. When I was in my early 20s, I actually went through about a pancreatitis, which is a lot of fun. And I remember when I was in with the pancreatitis, I was in just incredible pain in the hospital. And a nurse comes into the room. She sits down at the foot of my bed. She looks at me. She smiles sweetly. She has a coil of hose in her hand. And she says, you're not going to like what I'm about to do. And she was right. It's a thing called an NG tube. And what they do is they push it up your nose, down your throat, into your stomach. Lots of fun. And and i got to tell you, as she told me what she was going to do, she explained the procedure. She's going to push this up my nose, and it's supposed to go down my throat, right? And I'm trying to wrap my mind around how is this going to work. There's an old commercial. Maybe some of you remember this. It's an old Dristan commercial. and had this picture of your sinus passages. I couldn't get this picture out of my head as she's talking to me. I'm thinking, how do I know it's going to go around the corner not into my brain someplace? And apparently it doesn't work that way. Is all pain bad? Dr. Paul Brand was a pioneering physician in the treatment of leprosy. And what he discovered was that leprosy itself isn't what deformed those who suffered with it. What actually caused the deformities and the injuries was that leprosy robbed them of their sensation of pain. And so people would do things that injured themselves that a person without the disease wouldn't have done because pain would have worn them off. He told one story of a young boy who figured out he could make money by juggling hot coals for passers-by in the street. Oblivious to the fact that he was burning his hands and the infections that would come from it. Dr. Brand tried to find all kinds of ways to make up for this loss of the sense of pain. Uh, They tried education, and that helped some, but you had to teach people the kinds of things that they mustn't do. He said the problem was, because it didn't hurt, if they wanted to do something bad enough, they would just go ahead and do it, despite the education. They tried to come up with devices that would take the place. Like one was a glove that if, I think if things got too hot, it would make a buzzer go off, and, and that warned you that you were about to injure your hand because of the heat. But what they found would happen was the lepers would come to a situation where the buzzer was going off, They still wanted to do it, so they would just turn off the buzzer. They could ignore it. What he finally concluded was that pain is actually a gift. It's this sensation that we can't just turn off or ignore that warns us that something wrong is happening that we need to pay attention to. Of course, that brings up a question, which is, couldn't God make a world where nothing goes wrong? Yes, he could, but it'd be a world where we would be as inconsequential as Moss. Uh, when, we, when our kids were real little, we used to ride the ferry and they had these arcade games on there. One was a driving game. And of course, now it is. There's a demo thing that you see on the, the game screen that just loops over and over again. And the little kids didn't understand that. So it was great because we put them up in the game, they'd hold the steering wheel, and they thought they were doing something. Didn't cost me a dime. They just would drive the wheel and the pitch go around. But then the day came they figured out that they weren't actually doing anything. Then they wanted a quarter. Because they wanted to actually cause something to happen. And that was fine for a while, but then the day came when they realized that what they were doing on a screen still wasn't really doing anything. And then they wanted to actually drive the car. And that was consequential. Because now they were really doing things, they were really going places, but part of that ability to go places meant that they could also run into things. The more engaged they became as free agents in driving, the more potential there was for something of consequence to go wrong. Okay, so in order for us to have any kind of effect on the world, God has to allow us some freedom to make choices. Real things can happen, but couldn't God make the rules a little bit more flexible? I mean, if if we're about to really have a big mistake, couldn't God just sort of bend the rules a little bit so that didn't happen? That's what I call living in Looney Tunes land. You know it works in cartoons. The laws of physics are pretty pliable things. They can do kind of whatever the artist wants at any given moment. But in order for free agents to live meaningfully in a world where choices produce consequence, there have to be ground rules. There have to be some fixed things that we can count on, that we know how it works. I mean, think about it, if gravity fluctuated day to day or moment to moment or situation to situation, how would you ever know how to plan if you couldn't count on what gravity was going to do? Think about baseball. Back in uh, 2001, Randy Johnson was considered one of the hardest throwing pitchers in Major League Baseball. He was pitching a game against the Arizona Diamondbacks. They were playing against the San Francisco Giants. And during the seventh inning, he threw a fastball 100 miles per hour. He probably did it right-handed, but trust me. (laughs) Now, as it's heading for the batter, all of a sudden there is a flash and there's a puff because a pigeon happened to fly between the pitcher and the batter at just the wrong moment, which was bad for the pigeon. Now, think about if the baseball had, because that bad thing was about to happen, if God just suddenly suspended the laws of physics, said, okay, Randy, you threw that 100-mile-per-hour ball, but the ball suddenly is going to just stop in the air while the pigeon flies by, or the ball is going to jump up and over the pigeon, or or you go to throw from first to second base to get the runner out, and again, the ball stops just hovering in the air, and, and everyone's going, I wonder what happened? Was the ball going to hit the runner in the back? Was the second baseman going to miss it and get hit in the face? What, I don't know. And, and at what point would you say, you know, it's really not worth playing the game because we're never sure what the ball is going to do when we throw it or when we hit it. In order for Looney Tunes world to exist, every object would have to be endowed with the ability to anticipate all consequences. And the laws of physics would constantly be shifting and reversing and being suspended. But it is those very same laws that allow us to discover and explore things. In Looney Tunes' world, there would be no way to make a reliable prediction about anything. Well, What about things like natural disasters and famines and things like that? We've just watched the devastation of Hurricane Ian, and insurers love to call those things acts of God. Let me ask you, what is it that makes a disaster a disaster? What makes a disaster a disaster? Uh, Probably, uh, I mean, you know, Hurricane Ian is not the first or even the biggest monster hurricane that we've ever had. Uh, You probably remember back in 2009, Hurricane Rick Hurricane Rick was one of only 15 recorded class five hurricanes in the Pacific, sustained winds of 158 miles per hour for 24 hours straight with gusts getting up to 180. You don't remember Rick, do you? There's a reason for that, Rick never made landfall. Nobody died. Rick wasn't a disaster. That's, That's why we call disasters disasters, it's when there's loss of life and property. In fact, it appears that actually large-scale events like hurricanes are a necessary part of the environmental systems that God has built into our world, and it's a complex place. If you don't believe me, how about Biosphere 2? Biosphere 2 was an experiment where they tried to recreate all the elements of a functioning world, a functioning environment. Uh, It was the size of about two and a half football fields, it had a rainforest, it had an ocean complete with coral reefs, it had a mangrove wetland, a savanna, a desert, and a farm. And it was designed to be fully self-contained for two years. They put a team of people in there, they were supposed to seal it up and stay in there for two years as a self-sufficient environment. Right from the get-go, it was plagued by problems. Despite all the engineering, all the thought, all the planning, they had all kinds of problems. Uh, They were losing oxygen out of it, the CO2 kept going up and down as a result, most of the animals and the insects died. Uh, They found it required this constant intervention from the outside to try to keep fixing and keep it going. Eventually the crew themselves ended up divided, fighting between themselves. They ultimately locked their managers out, and finally two of the crew members vandalized the place, broke the seal, and just ran out of the facility. why are lives and property lost in natural disasters? Well, people choose to build in places subject to storms, like Fort Myers. I heard a podcast last week and they said that anyone who's governor of Florida knows that he or she is probably going to manage a hurricane because that's what happens in Florida, hurricanes hit. Also often in natural disasters. Lives are lost, property is lost, because of greed. I've listened to aid workers describe being in an area where a big storm had hit, having food supplies come in that would feed everyone, and watching helplessly as the soldiers that were supposed to guard the food supply looted the food, stole it, and left people to starve. Which brings us to the question, what about evil? Sometimes people maintain that evil doesn't exist. They chalk it up to little more than this amoral collision of personal preferences and competing priorities. That's all it is. What you call evil isn't really evil, it's just a different value system. Years ago I had the chance, along with our oldest son, to go to Cambodia. And at Cambodia we did a lot of fun things. We got to ride an elephant. We got to experience traffic in Phnom Penh, which is actually more terrifying than interesting. We got to try eating tarantulas. Mm-hmm. And we also got to visit S21. S21, Security Prison 21. One time it had been a junior high school, but then it became a prison during the reign of Pol Pot. Out of 17,000 prisoners that went through S21, there are only 12 known survivors. As we walked through that facility, every room we walked into got worse. The torture that happened. We'd go into a room, and I'd say, this is the most horrible thing I've ever witnessed. And the guide would say, well, wait till you see the next room. About the third room in, I'd like, would you please stop saying that? But he was right every time. When evil wraps its icy fingers around your throat, and stares you down with those blood-red eyes, all that silly talk about relativism and just different value systems disappears. So where does such evil come from? Is God himself the creator of evil? Well, 1 John tells us that whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. So then, where does evil come from? Well, I suggest one of the first sources is us, as free moral agents. Remember the old saying, it said, if you love something, set it free. If it comes back to you, it is yours. If it doesn't, it never was. There's the idea of giving freedom. There was a corollary to that one. It said, if it doesn't come back, hunt it down and kill it. To create good and give creatures a free choice means that evil becomes possible, possibly even essential. What is the freedom to love without the freedom to hate? God provides a beach. We dig a hole. Did God create the hole? God is all powerful, but that doesn't mean he can create things that are not possible. You cannot make a person choose freely. C.S. Lewis says that nonsense remains nonsense even when we talk it about God. The French mathematician Blaise Pascal said that God has given us the dignity of causality. God has given us the ability to make choices, good and bad, and when we make those choices, things happen. We have the dignity of causality. Ideas and choices have consequences. There are people who will decry the atrocities of church history as an argument against God, against faith, and there have certainly been atrocities done in the name of God. When the church has confused the power and ethics of the kingdom of men with the ethic of the kingdom of heaven, much evil has been done. And that should be a good warning to any who would delve into what is sometimes called today Christian nationalism. But the greatest atrocities have occurred in the name of atheism. To take God out of the equation does not make for a more humane world. In fact, it seems to make for a more cruel world. Stalin, Pol Pot, Mao Zedong, they evoke colossal images of cruelty. But here's the thing, when When those characters, with their godless worldview, commit those kinds of crimes, there is no hypocrisy. That that is living completely faithful and true to a belief system. That's not to say that all atheists, all those who reject faith are bad people. Many are very good and decent and fair and kind. I've met people who do not share faith that frankly I'd rather do business with than some people I've known who profess to be Christians. However, if you take God out of the equation, I don't believe that there is an an unalterably good reason for being good. There is nothing that says that goodness has to be the preferred mode when you take God away. You can make an argument for goodness as a Darwinian survival strategy, the herd does better when we treat each other well, but there is just as compelling an argument for brute and brutal force. When evil is done in the name of Christianity, it is a contradiction of terms. Jesus once quizzed about what were the most important commands. Matthew 22, he said, well, the first is to love the Lord your God, the second is to love your neighbor. And then he went on to illustrate it with the story of the Good Samaritan. Remember the story of the Good Samaritan. It's a story that's grounded in compassion toward strangers and one that flew in the face of racism and prejudice. But without God, the choice between love and brutality is a philosophical coin toss. It was because of faith that William Wilberforce, a Christian, led a 20-year campaign in Britain to end slavery. It's Christians who have built schools and hospitals and been at the forefront of fighting sex trafficking. Ideas and choices have consequences. A second source of evil, the Bible says, is demonic agents. And here you have to allow me to give you this Christian answer, unbounded by our Western materialistic preferences. The Christian worldview doesn't stop simply at human free will. We acknowledge that there are malevolent forces at work that our eyes cannot see. Jesus dealt with demons. It may sound strange to us, but most cultures acknowledge the occult. It was the inescapable feeling my son and I had as we walked through S21 that what happened there went beyond just being mean. It it went beyond just competing world philosophies. There was something palpably evil behind it that would cause such horrors to be wrought. Scott Peck, a clinical psychiatrist, wrote a book years ago called Glimpses of the Devil. I don't agree with much of his approach, but, but as a clinical psychiatrist, he had asked if he could witness some exorcisms. And what he came away with was a firm conviction that what he had witnessed couldn't be explained on just psychological grounds. That there was something real and evil beyond what he could lay his hands on. So why would God allow such beings to have any realm of influence? Why not simply destroy that kind of evil being? And I have to say, well, maybe there's more at play than we know. Perhaps the great challenge that has been thrown up to God is not, are you powerful? You can answer that question by just destroying your enemies. But maybe the challenge is, are you worthy? The book of Job begins with this picture of Satan like a prosecutor challenging God's worthiness. The Lord said to Satan, if you consider my servant Job, Job there's no one like him on all the earth. He's blameless, upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And Satan says, well, does Job fear God for nothing? You put a hedge around him, around his household, everything he has. You've blessed the work of his hands. His flocks and herds are spread out everywhere. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he'll surely curse you to your face. And so God proceeds to allow Satan to strip Job of everything. The only thing that Job has left is a wife who tells him to curse God and die, and a bunch of friends who say it must all be Job's fault. From Job's perspective, the trials are random and meaningless. But from another perspective, Job's stubborn faith is a testimony far beyond his own understanding that God is worthy simply because he is God, not because he's some kind of a divine sugar daddy. And of course, in the end of Job's story, we find that God is loyal to Job as well. There's a fascinating scripture. It comes out of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 3 through 7. I'm just going to quote part of it. Paul says, we were by nature objects of wrath, but because of his, God's, great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Now catch this. In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Could it be that we are playing a role in something greater than just our own story? That's above my pay grade. But why do we think that we're the only beings that God is dealing with? What if the challenge that has been thrown up is a challenge to the character of God? If that is so, then simply destroying the challenger doesn't answer the challenge. The depth of God's love could only be proven before all creation if he faced the challenge. It's not something God has to do over and over again. It's not something he's obliged to show every rebel. But if creatures who are as flawed and self-willed as us can be loved and redeemed, and if we demonstrate through our worship, even in the face of hardship, that we revere God as worthy, then the challenge has been forever answered. In the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. If the question ever comes up again in the future of time as to how great is God's grace, how deep is his love, all he has to do is point at me sitting there and say, how do you think that guy got here? Pain, disaster, evil present hard questions to be sure, but what about goodness and joy? G.K. Chesterton said that when critics challenge believers with the question, what about evil, Christians should be just as quick to say, well, what about good? Why do we experience goodness, love, joy? The joy of love. Sexuality. We used to take our little kids to the park to feed the ducks, and one day, one of them asked me a really awkward question and said, Daddy, why is that duck drowning the other duck? (laughs) Animal sexuality is effective, but it's hardly tender and loving. In fact, we refer to certain degrading forms of sexual conduct as being bestial. And yet, human sexuality, rightly entered between a husband and wife, brings two individuals together in love and tenderness, pleasure, and joy. Within the past couple of years, we've had two new grandkids added to our family. And when you hold a newborn, it is joy. How hollow to reduce such wonder to simply an evolved sense of relief that your gene pool will be continued. There's the pleasure of creation. Why do we have the capacity to enjoy beauty? Mankind alone is moved by a beautiful sunset. Why the love of music, poetry, art... Why the ability to taste and smell with such pleasurable discrimination? And then there is the sense of ought. Uh, The natural world is quite amoral, amoral. Uh, Have you ever had chickens? What happens if one chicken gets sick in the flock? The rest gather around and lovingly nurse it back to health, right? No, no. They pick on it. They will literally pick it to death. That there is no compassion there. And yet, humans are profoundly moral. We are profoundly flawed, but still we have this sense that there is an ought in the world. In fact, the very fact we wrestle with this moral problem of evil is because we have an inbuilt sense of good. We recognize evil as something that ought not to be. We may do bad things, but we want to justify them when we do. When we went through the torture rooms of S21, there was this weird thing in there. Every one of these rooms shows absolute brutality. There was still blood, not only on the walls, but on the ceiling. And you knew that every person that went in there was going to die. That was predetermined before it ever started. And yet, in the corner of every room, there was a desk. And the desk was there so that an officer of Pol Pot's regime could sit there to write down the confessions of those who were being tortured. Why? Because it demonstrated that in putting them to death they were doing the right thing. Why did they even care about some semblance of doing the right thing? Even in doing such horrible atrocities, there was still this sense of ought. Somehow we need to try and justify that what we've done is okay. A person completely devoid of moral conscience is labeled as criminally insane. In fact, there's a compelling philosophical argument that goodness and evil actually pose an argument for God. It looks like this. To assert evil is to assume good. To assert good is to assume a transcendent moral law, something above us that you can't change that says here's what is good. And to assert a transcendent moral law is to posit a transcendent moral law giver. It came from someone. So where is God when it hurts? Romans 8.28, maybe one of the most misapplied verses I know when it comes to suffering. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And people will see something terrible happen. And they'll say, Oh, that's not really bad. It's really good because God works all things for good. That verse does not say that bad is good. Bad is bad. What the verse says is that even in the midst of bad, God can still work good. Something I've learned about God is that God is not primarily concerned about my comfort as much as he is my soul. And sometimes God allows me to go through those hard things because he's doing something deeper in me. I believe I'm a kinder, more compassionate, more humble person. I'd love to talk about my humility sometime, but there's really not time to discuss it right now. (laughs) No, I'm, I'm a different person today because of some of the hard things that God has taken me through. Things that I think have made my soul a richer place. Out of The Velveteen Rabbit, children's storybook, the rabbit asked the Velveteen Rabbit, how, or asked the horse, the skin horse, how do you become real? Here's what the skin horse said to the Velveteen Rabbit. He said, it doesn't happen all at once, becoming real. You, you become. It takes a long time. That's why it doesn't often happen to people who break easily or have sharp edges or who have to be carefully kept. Generally, by the time you're real, most of your hair has been loved off, and your eyes drop out, and you get loose in the joints and very shabby. But those things don't matter at all, because once you're real, you can't be ugly, except to people who don't understand. God's perspective is an eternal one. 2 Corinthians, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And God's resolve in shaping us, even through the difficult things, his resolve is unshakable. And sometimes that's hard. C.S. Lewis once said, what do people mean when they say, I'm not afraid of God? Have they never even been to a dentist? (laughs) His ability to work in the midst of the chaos of free will agents and hostile forces to bring about ultimate good is unfathomable. God's final answer to Job was, can you trust me? even when you don't understand, even when you don't know what the big picture is, can you trust me? God is the final judge. The Christian understanding is that evil is a result primarily of man's choice, but it is not part of God's nature. 1 John 1, 5, God is light, in him there is no darkness at all. And God has drawn a boundary on human wickedness. It's called death. Ultimately, he will judge with absolute justice. And when he does, No one's going to say, well, that was unfair. When all the facts are in, and when we see how God finally decides, we'll say that was completely in line with who you are, and it was fair, it was just. So where is God in pain and suffering? I believe he's right beside us. God hurts with us. God took a risk creating a world where love is possible but he is not a passive, detached Buddha. Christianity is no Pollyanna religion. It doesn't promise that if you come to Jesus, everything's gonna be great. In fact, uh, Jesus said this. He said, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Jesus, God incarnate, entwined himself with suffering humanity and ultimately hung on a cross Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus humbled himself to become one of us and humbled himself all the way to death. And he asks us to entwine our lives with his and to compassionately love others. Mark 8, he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And it is throughout history that followers of Christ have heeded that call to sacrifice themselves for others and have stood in the face of sin, wickedness, pain, and suffering. When the plague of Cyprian struck in AD 250 and lasted for years, it was Christians who stayed and cared for the sick. Around 350 AD, in a time when there was no social welfare system, it was the Church of Antioch that supported 3,000 widows, the sick and the poor. William Carey, Mother Teresa, gave their lives to care for the outcasts of India, people that, according to that faith, were declared as having bad karma and simply deserved what they got, or in Africa. I came across an article written by Matthew Paris, who professes to be an atheist. He wrote this back in 2008. The article was titled, "As an Atheist, I truly believe Africa." needs God. Look what he said. Now a confirmed atheist, I've become convinced of the enormous contribution that Christian evangelism makes in Africa, sharply distinct from the work of secular NGOs, government projects, and international aid efforts. These alone will not do. Education and training alone will not do. In Africa, Christianity changes people's hearts. It brings a spiritual transformation the rebirth is real, the change is good. Pain, suffering, evil. It's personal. You know, evil is the easiest to identify when we are the victim. It is the hardest to admit when we are the perpetrator. Over the years, I have counseled with a lot of couples, and I've always said that whenever I counsel with a couple, I've always met with the victim and never the perpetrator, even when I've talked to both parties. Blaise Pascal, the French mathematician, reflected on his own hungers. He referred to them as licking the earth. Carl Jung, the psychiatrist, said, it is becoming more obvious that it is not starvation, not microbes, not cancer, but man himself who is mankind's greatest danger. G.K. Chesterton once famously responded with a letter to the editor to a newspaper that had posed the question, what is wrong with the world? Chesterton responded with two words, I am. A young woman once confessed to me a terrible thing she had done, and she said, shouldn't God damn someone to hell for doing something like that? And there's the tension. On one side, a free moral agent who has chosen badly and has harmed others. And yet, a broken heart that desperately wants to be forgiven and to somehow be right with the one who is the final judge. On the other side is a God who is filled with love, but one who will not in the end wink at evil. So how can those two be reconciled? Three crosses stood on a hill. In the middle hung Jesus. As he hung there, he cried out words taken out of Psalm 22. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I'm grateful that he uttered those words. He had prayed the night before, Father, be your will. Let this cup pass from me. I don't want to do this. I don't want to go through this pain, this evil, this suffering. And like you and I, there are times we cry out to God, and we say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have I been left with this pain, the victim of this evil? God incarnate, facing the full fury of evil, hate, betrayal, injustice, pain, an innocent man being punished for the guilty. On one side, another man was hanging a thief. He actually challenged Jesus with his own pain. He said, if you're the son of God, why don't you save yourself and save us too? On the other side was another thief, but one who saw hope. He acknowledged his own looking of the earth. He recognized though that there was something unique, something powerful in this man in the middle. And he cried out for grace. He said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. So the question is, which side of the cross are you on this morning? We can mock. We can be angry. We can push away from Jesus because of the pain. We can recognize that he is right next to us. And we can cling to him and say, remember me. I want to close with some prayer this morning. And I want to invite you to join me, to bow your heads. And I want you to pray first for yourself and then for someone else. I want you to spend a few moments in quiet prayer, bringing your own pain to God. You know your story. Some of you are carrying wounds from long ago that still feel raw and open even today others of you are going through difficult difficult times right now and maybe you've prayed and you said my god my god why have you forsaken me take a moment to talk to him about your own pain Ask you now to pray for someone else. Maybe someone who's seated near. In fact, if you're comfortable, you don't have to do this, but if you're comfortable, maybe just put your hand on their shoulder. Whether you know them or not, I guarantee you they have pain. And whether you know what their pain is or not, take a moment to let them know that you're there, to let them know that you're praying for them, and to lift them up before the God who is there and who does care. (laughs) Father God, you have heard a chorus of prayers this auditorium and you've seen all of our stories all the stories of pain Lord Jesus we come to you with our pain knowing that you understand you have stood where we stand you have felt what we feel and yet you are the one who has the power, the grace the ability to hold us and ultimately to give us the victory that only you have. And so I pray, Lord, for each one here this morning that is carrying that load of pain. Oh, Lord Jesus, would your Holy Spirit speak into their heart that you love them. And whether we see the answer coming immediately or not until we see you face to face, Lord, would you please give us the the grace, the courage, the patience to hold on to you. To be at rest in you. Thank you for your great love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.